Ross uh, wrapped up chapter three in our series on Ephesians last week, and it was actually, I told him, one of my favorite Ross Strader sermons. Um, if, if you didn't listen to it, please go back and listen to it. And it's where he pointed out the last part of chapter three was the bridge between the first three chapters, which showed kind of this gracious, beautiful story of God's plan of redemption for all of creation. And it serves as the hinge or kind of the bridge into the section that was uh, how we live in the world because of all of that. And I think his point in at the end of chapter 3 that he said was that um, without this bridge and the bridge that showed that Christ's power is working in us, in our inner being to strengthen us, without that bridge the rest of Ephesians was a crushing burden. So he left me to preach on the crushing burden. So here's, here's what I'm going to ask. Um, listen to my sermon, go back and listen to his, and remember um, how this is all supposed to work and how uh, God is still gracious, uh, and we'll see that even in this passage today. Uh, but before I, talk, I preach on the crushing burden of Ephesians 4, I want to uh, lighten the mood by talking about one of my favorite movies of all time, Steven Spielberg's Saving Private Ryan, which I guess isn't the lightest movie to talk about on a Sunday. If you haven't seen it uh, and you don't mind a little blood and gore, you should see it. It's a wonderful movie. It's set in June of 1944. And it's really about the invasion of Normandy, D-Day, as we say now. And it's the story of Captain Miller, played by Tom Hanks. And he leads this team of rangers first onto the shore, the bloody, murderous, gruesome shore that was Omaha Beach. And then across that, that beach, up and taking out all the bunkers that were raining machine gun fire down on everyone coming on shore. And somehow, after surviving all of that, he gets an even harder mission a few days later. His mission, it's almost impossible, to take eight guys in the midst of all the confusion and the fog of war, where airborne landings have gone horribly wrong and soldiers are scattered all over western France, for him to take seven other guys and go and find one single soldier. Go find one guy in the midst of this sea of soldiers before there was GPS and without radio communication. Go and find Private James Ryan. So what makes Private Ryan so special that General Marshall, the Army Chief of Staff, would risk the lives of these eight men go after this lowly private. Was Private Ryan a big hero? Was he going to go and invent the nuclear bomb? Why was this one private so important? And it turns out it had nothing to do with anything he had done. Turns out Private Ryan had three other brothers who were serving in World War II, and they all had died in the last couple of days. And his mother was going to get a telegram that informed her that three of her sons had died, which would be an awful 
an unimaginable blow. So to lessen that blow, the army orders Captain Miller to risk his life and the lives of those seven men to rescue the one. Not because of anything Ryan had done to earn or deserve this. So Captain Miller walks and fights his way for days, losing men along the way until he finally finds Ryan in the fictional village of Rommel. He finds him part of this ragtag group of soldiers that are cobbled together from all, for many units and they're bracing for an attack from the Germans and they have to keep this bridge. Don't let the bridge be taken. And so Captain Miller decides to stay there and fight in this battle. And in the process, he loses the rest of his men except one. All of them are killed. And Captain Miller, as he lays on that bridge mortally wounded, with his last gasping breath, looks up at Ryan and says two words. Earn this. Earn it. It's impossible mission and a crushing burden. If you've seen the movie, you remember the next scene is Private Ryan standing in front of the camera and he gradually morphs and ages into an old man. Standing at the foot of the grave of Captain Miller in a cemetery with row after row of bleached white crosses rooted in grass that is so green it looks like it's fake. And the words earn it contort his face into a grimace, and he kneels down at this cross at Captain Miller's grave, and he says this, every day I think about what you said to me on this bridge, on that bridge. I've tried to live my life the best I could. I hope it is enough. I hope, at least in your eyes, that I've done enough to earn what all of you have done for me. The camera pans out. You see his wife and his family, seven people coincidentally, and he turns to his wife with his eyes full of tears, and he says, tell me I've led a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. Our passage today starts with a similar, impossible mission. Walk in a manner worthy of our calling. You know, if all you had in the Bible was this one verse, walk in a manner worthy of your calling, we'd be forced to live like Private Ryan, asking ourselves the question every day, was that enough? Was I good enough? Was I worthy? Did I measure up? Now that's James Ryan. How about you? Is that how you live? At a practical or emotional level? Even if theologically you know better? Always trying to be a little better today? Struggling? discouraged with a view of God 
who seems to be eternally shaking his head in disapproval. That's one extreme reaction to this verse. Here's the other extreme. I know I'm saved. I remember back Ephesians 2.8. I'm saved by grace through faith. So it doesn't really matter what I do. Do whatever I want. Just kind of give up on the Christian life. I live life kind of like I've got to get out of hell card free. Both of those reactions are wrong. But I'm going to try and do something that's hard here. I'm going to preach a Goldilocks sermon. Not too burdensome and still not unconcerned with how we live. I want you to feel this burden briefly and then I hope, I pray, that I show how God lifts that burden from us. I hope, if I've done my job, you'll see how God gracefully and mercifully lightens this burden to where the impossible becomes real, the ugly becomes beautiful, and this lonely struggle turns into this beautiful walk with friends and family. So turn with me to Ephesians 4, and we'll cover verses 1 to 16. Ephesians 4, 1 to 16, which is, a really, which is really enough text for two sermons. But Todd made me promise that I wouldn't preach for an hour. So I'm going to have to move fast, but here's what I hope you'll see. You'll see the lifted burden. At the end, that's what I hope you feel is a burden lifted, not that I've heaped and heaped and heaped a burden on you. We'll start with looking at that burden in verses 1 through 3, and then we'll see the burden lightened by a godly example in 4 through 6. We'll see the burden lifted by grace gifts in 7, 12. And then we'll see the burden lugged around by others in a grace-fueled church in 13 through 16. The burden lightened by godly example, lifted by grace gifts, and lugged around by a grace-fueled church. So let's get started. The burden, reading from verses 1 through 3, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So Paul's writing from a prison cell, saying that he's a prisoner for the Lord, maybe more literally in the Lord. His union to Christ and his obedience to God has led him to a prison cell. And his encouragement to us, his exhortation is walk figuratively, which means to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So this is more than just a suggestion or a good idea. Paul earnestly wants his readers to do this. Back in the first two chapters, the calling was usually in an individual sense. You're calling as an individual to believe in the gospel. But here, it's both the individual calling that's made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus that results in a calling to live 
a new life in this new creation that we've just read about in the previous chapter, the church. This new group of Jews and Gentiles that are the body of Christ. So it's this calling to live in community in the church that's really in view here. So to live worthy, to measure up. Let's start by saying that that's impossible for us to measure up to the calling made possible by Christ's sacrifice. But how are we ever supposed to live together in church filled with all sorts of different types of people? People of different backgrounds, different cultures, different ages, different professions, different beliefs, as different as Jews and Gentiles were 2,000 years ago. How do you do that? Look at verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Humility. All humility. The highest humility. You could read. The most humility. Putting the interests of others, even their desires, ahead of your own. Which Paul's readers in Greek culture, they didn't see this as a benefit. They saw it as a moral flaw. In fact, the word here for humility didn't even exist in Greek before New Testament times. This is a radically different way to live for Paul's readers, and it still is today. All humility. That's strike one for me. And gentleness. This isn't weakness. The same word is used to describe Jesus and Paul in the New Testament and even Moses in the Old Testament in the Septuagint, all of whom showed righteous anger. In fact, one commentator describes this as the man who is always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. Strike two on me. Patiently bearing with one another in love, which is waiting patiently without immediate results, tolerating differences, tolerating disappointment. Why? Because we love each other. Kind of love that seeks each other's good, that helps us to discern and lead us to the will of God. Patiently. Strike three for me. Look at verse three. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Not begrudgingly. Eagerly to make every effort. Not to create unity. We'll see that in a bit that God creates it. But just maintain it. Don't mess it up. I know I've run out of strikes, but that's strike four for me. Hopeless. Can't make the grade. Can't carry my own weight, much less this crushing expectation. I want to pause here because for me, this is the lowest point. This is the heaviest burden. Walk worthy of Christ's call with the highest humility, being perfectly angry, 
perfectly self-controlled, and patient with everyone else because you love them eagerly. This is like a Mary Poppins church member, practically perfect in every way, which is impossible. A crushing burden. You know, I had a conversation with one of my older sons this week, and he described his feeling, this feeling, perfectly. When he said he felt like every time he came to church, he had this overwhelming feeling of not measuring up. A crushing feeling, which broke my heart. But after the first three verses of Ephesians 4, I get that feeling. It's a heavy, unbearable burden. Have you ever felt that? Well, hang with me because it's about to get better. Here's the first glimmer of an easing burden. The last part of verse 3, this unity, it's created and maintained by the Holy Spirit. And because of that, this unity is bound up with peace. Paul is a chained prisoner for Christ, and he's saying that this Spirit-powered unity is so attached to peace that it's literally chained together. Paul told us back in chapter 2 that Jesus had broken down the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentile, and now we have the Spirit preserving that peace. Yet we know that's not always the case in the church world. There is conflict. Sometimes even church split, I've heard. Happens in other churches, right? Not, not here at Bethel. Like I said, there's, there's enough text here for two or three sermons, so I don't want to dwell on this. But um, I don't want us to stop here figuratively as kind of like Atlas, holding up the whole world, the weight of the world on our, our shoulders. So I'll try and pick up the pace here and, and look at how this burden is reduced or lightened. You ever want to see something new or different and you can't even begin to imagine it? Don't even know what that would look like. And that's the first way the load is lightened here. This unity is established and modeled by the triune God. Look at verse 4 through 6. And the oneness that God has established in the church, it's modeled and empowered by all three members of the Trinity. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul uses words for one seven times here. There's only one body, one universal church, all believers united in faith, one Holy Spirit uniting believers, one hope, which is the eager expectation of the outworking of God's plan. So we've gone from no hope in chapter 2 to one hope here in chapter 4, 
One call for Jews and Gentiles, both called by God to believe in Jesus Christ. One Lord, Jesus. One way to be reconciled to God through that one faith. One baptism. Hold it. We've messed that up, right? There's multiple ways to be baptized. Based on the context here, I think this refers to not water baptism, but our identification with Christ, our baptism into his death and resurrection. And finally, one God, one true God, one Father, the last person of the Trinity here, but the one who is over everyone and everything. Not only is he sovereign, large, and in charge, look at the end of verse 6. He is through all. He's working through all believers. All believers. And how is he doing that? He's in all believers. Upon coming to faith, we are indwelled by the very Spirit of God. We are empowered. We become a new creation. So part of how we live together in unity is a better understanding of all that we have truly in common. The most important things that we have in common. And what the triune God has done and is doing to maintain and preserve that unity. It's bigger than all the things that would divide divide us. It's bigger than our worship styles. It's bigger than our national politics. Way bigger than church politics. And amazingly, I can't believe I'm about to say these words, it's bigger than how you feel about masks. Which I know a year ago would never have been in a sermon that I would ever have preached. So that's the first way God lightens the load. This unity is established, modeled, and empowered by the triune God. Let's look at verses 7 to 12. You'll see God has lifted the burden through grace gifts for everyone. While the last three verses have shown all the reasons why we're unified in a way that is common, in a way that is uniform, Paul's going to switch now to show how we are unified in our diversity in the same way that the Trinity demonstrates both unity and diversity. Verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Normally, we think of grace as unmerited favor, as it was for most of the case of the first three chapters. But here, it's still unmerited. It's a gift from Christ. But this is a grace gift of enablement. And it varies amongst believers, however Christ chooses to distribute them. Before anyone starts to get jealous over someone else's gift, which I know is possible, the value of these gifts is determined by the giver and how they're used in the body, not which gift or how much of a gift. And then in verses 8 through 10, Paul is referring back to Psalm 68, which is a royal psalm of victory. God's victory over his foes. 
And even though these two verses are kind of an aside, it's something that commentators have struggled to figure out exactly what Paul is referring to here. And rather than go through all the different options, I'm going to tell you what I believe it refers to. This refers to the incarnation of the Son of God coming to earth and growing, living, and dying as a real man, Jesus of Nazareth. And in his resurrection, provided the evidence of his victory over death. His victory over God's enemy, Satan. And that victory frees us from the bondage of death and sin that we were powerless to break without him. But here's one thing I think everyone, all the commentators agree on, and I think it's Paul's main point here. As victor, Christ has the authority over everything. And he has the authority to give gifts in whatever measure he prefers, both the gifts in verse 7 and the gifts in verse 11. His victory gives him the right to give those gifts. Now think about how hollow a gift would be if you didn't have the authority to give it. Imagine this. Well, you don't have to imagine this. It's actually true. I have a son named Fritz who's a huge John Mayer fan. And if you don't know, John Mayer is this very talented singer, songwriter, and maybe the best guitar player of his generation. I don't want to fight about that in a sermon about unity. But imagine this. Christmas morning, my son Fritz comes down. He finds a big guitar-shaped present with a massive bow around it. And the card says, enjoy John Mayer's guitar. Make great music. Love, Dad. So two things will happen. Either he'll open the box and it'll be empty because I don't have the authority to really give him that gift, which is useless and crushing if I still expect him to make great music with it. Or the other option is it's there because I stole it from John Mayer and Fritz and I are both in big trouble. But here's the other thing. Either way, because I don't have the authority to give the gift, he can't use it. He can't use it to make great music. But the gifts that Jesus gives to us, he has that authority. And he intends us to use them. Look at verse 11. He's not only given gifts to every believer, he's given some believers as gifts to other believers. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Again, this is a long passage. I won't get into all of this. I take this as gifts, not offices, for some of you more theological nerdy types here. The apostles and prophets were foundational to the church. I don't have time to go into how these gifts overlap, whether they're still being active and gifted today. But here's what's most important for this text. They are gifts to the church. And we see their purpose in verse 11 and their ultimate goal in verse 12. Look at 11. Their purpose is straightforward. It's to equip the saints. That's not for like the super Christians. It's the saints as in everyone who believes. 
for the work of the ministry. So these gifted saints, their work, if you will, is the work of equipping. And everyone else's work is the work of the ministry. In our context, that means shepherds or pastors in some translations, and teachers are to lead, encourage, identify giftedness, and teach so that the members of the church are equipped to do the work that God has gifted them for and called them to. All of us. So if you're a believer here today and you don't know what your ministry work is, ask someone. Ask a pastor, an elder, a deacon, a ministry leader, and let them help you figure that out. And the aim of that work is to build up, to strengthen, to grow the church, the body of Christ. So the first way God lightened the burden of living worthy was by providing a godly example, a perfect godly example, and empowering us to live in unity. We just covered the second way God has lifted the burden of living worthy, by gifting us with other believers who are themselves gifted to help us. Now let's look at verses 13 through 16 to see how the burden of living worthy can be lugged around by others. Before we go to 13, you might be saying, okay, I see that there's work to be done. How long do I have to work? Because I'm tired. How long should that be? A couple of weeks? Month, maybe a whole semester. Surely, Fritz, you can't be talking about a whole, like, year. That's a really long time. It's worse than that. Look at how verse 13 starts. This work, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Our work continues, all of our work continues until we all are unified in the faith, until we all are unified in what we know about Jesus, until we all are fully mature, until we all become like Christ. So, not you, me, speaking for myself, y'all have a long way to go before I measure up to the stature of the fullness of Christ. Y'all have a lot of work to do on me. So, Johnny, get busy. But there's something else here. As this body of believers becomes more mature, they are also more unified. And I remember about 10 years ago, not long after I'd come to Bethel, something that one of our elders told me. So I didn't like hearing it at the time. See, we just let go of a pastor who'd been at the church for a very long time. And there were a lot of folks who were upset. 
There were people who were upset that this pastor was no longer a part of the church, and there were people who were upset because people were upset. I was in that category. I was in the upset because people were upset category. And I'll never forget what that wise elder told me. He said, if you guys screwed up by letting him go, then it'll work towards your sanctification. If he deserved it, it'll work towards his sanctification. Either way, someone's getting sanctified. And the members of the church are growing in their Christ-likeness. And either option he was okay with. Now, Paul's going to show us the benefit of that kind of maturity. First, negatively, tell us what it doesn't look like, and then positively. Negatively in verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. This immaturity is chaotic and unstable. It is easily tricked or fooled into believing error. Growing out of the baby believer phase through the giftings of the pastor teachers and other gifted leaders in a community full of other mature believers brings unity and stability out of this chaos. This type of maturity protects you and it protects all of us in the church from believing things that are not true. Certainly matters of doctrine, but I think these schemes could include matters outside the church, things you read on social media, things you see on your flavor of the news, things that are false, and because they are false, it brings discredit on the other things we believe about Jesus that are true. So that's negative, tossed around like a child. Positively, verse 15, here's what maturity looks like. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Now, speaking the truth, which we sometimes like to do because we like being right, sometimes that can be hard, but doing it with love is even harder. And I think what's even harder here is this Greek word for speaking the truth. The Old Testament in the Septuagint never refers to actually speaking. It refers to the way you live. So I think what this really is telling us is not just be correct and true in the words that we say, it's to be correct and true in the way we live. In both our speech and our conduct, which I think that's what Paul means here. We're to grow in every way, not just in our head knowledge, but in the way we live, especially with our fellow believers. Being in community, unified in Christ with people who are growing and maturing, which protects unity and promotes our individual growth. Now, Paul closes this passage by describing this unified body of believers as the actual body of Christ who is its head. 
from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I want to make a couple of observations here before I wrap up. The first is that every one of us has a role. The whole body, every joint, it takes all of us. In fact, look in the middle of the verse. Paul says when each part, when each joint is not just working, but working properly, that's when there is growth. Which means we can't do this without each other. We're not rugged individual Christians. We are needy, dependent Christians who need the gifts that you all have. And I know this is true from personal experience. Joints need to work for the body to grow. I've ruptured my patella, which is this big tendon in your knee. I've actually done it twice. And the second time it happened, my kneecap shattered. And this is what it looked like. Let's show this picture here. Lee, you've already seen this. Yeah, there we go. That's my hairy knee with a smiley face in the middle of it. Sorry, to, you can take that picture down. That's gross, I know. I want to make sure you're awake before the end of the sermon. Not only did that individual joint not work, it immediately impacted the rest of my body. I couldn't bend that leg for six weeks. Some of y'all remember me hobbling around on crutches. During that six weeks, my quad turned to jello. I couldn't exercise, so I gained weight. And the pizza probably had something to do with that too. But then other stuff started to hurt, which could have just been me getting old because that's continued even after the joint was fixed. But the point is that a problem with that one joint kept the rest of my body from working like it was supposed to. The other reason I know this is true is because of what I see in the church. We, all of us, desperately need each other. Every single gift, every single person using their gifts properly so that we're all unified and growing. So that's the final way this burden of walking worthily is lifted. That burden is lugged around by all of us for each other. Before I close, I want to talk into a fairly recent development in the church. And it's one that has accelerated with COVID. And it's this idea that you can do church or even be a mature Christ follower by yourself or with just your family. 
And while I'm thankful that we have the technology to connect us when we're not physically together, and I know that there are many of us that needed to stay away from gathering for health reasons, and I know that many of the people watching online, if you're still with me, long for the day they can safely come back to church. But others, maybe even a little bit, kind of liked doing church at home in our jammies with our coffee and our breakfast and a pause button when something else more important came up. Or maybe that little skip button, if you're not watching it live, where you get bored, you don't have to get up and walk out, you just hit the power button. Maybe some of you, I guess not listening to this anymore, found other pastors or worship leaders whose preaching or singing you enjoy more. Maybe they're in another city another state, and that's what you do for church now. I think this passage says that's not church, that's entertainment. Our passage today casts a radically different view of what church is. Church is the place we go to use our God-given gifts for the benefit of others, so that they grow in their Christ-likeness to maturity, which we really don't want you to do in your pajamas. That would be weird here. But we need you, and we need each other. I began with the hope that you wouldn't be burdened by this passage, that ultimately you would see this burden of living worthily, lightened by God's example and empowerment, lifted by grace gifts that we all received, and then lugged around by one another in a grace-fueled church. And if you saw the movie Saving Private Ryan, you remember that last scene where he turns to his wife and he says, Tell me that I've led a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. And his wife says, yes, you have. But I have to tell you, as your brother, speaking the truth in love, that Mrs. Ryan is wrong. In fact, she's dead wrong. None of us are good enough to earn what Christ has given us freely and graciously because he loves us. And all we have to do is accept his offer, accept his gift, that he took our place on that cross. And if we are identified with him in his death and resurrection. We can die and be raised to a new life. 
And when that happens, the very Spirit of God comes and lives inside of us and changes our hearts, changes our affections, keeps us united, and grows us to look more and more like Christ. Because the gospel is the only good answer to the Ryan question of, am I good enough? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we are not worthy and that you are and that your son, Jesus, was worthy. Worthy in our place if we just accept that free gift. So, Father, I pray that if anyone is here today or listening to these words, Father, if, if they don't know your son, if they're still struggling with this question of, am I good enough? Can I measure up? They feel disappointment, which could be conviction. Father, I pray that in your grace and mercy, you'd give them a true and accurate belief in who Jesus was and what he did for them. And Father, for those of us who have accepted that gracious offer, Father, I pray that this burden of living in a manner worthy of our calling would ultimately be a light one. Not light because we disregard it. Not light because we don't care about our brothers and sisters. But light because we trust and rest and walk in the power of your Spirit. And Father, whatever the obstacles to real, truthful community are, Father, I pray that you would break them down. I pray that you would knit us together in love. You would protect us from conflict and disunity over things that are not important. And in doing that, Father, you would grow us more and more and more and more like Christ. Because that's only something that you can do. So while I pray this, the only name that gives us access to you, and that is the name of Jesus, and in the power of your Spirit, amen.